The primary purpose of this podcast is to educate and inform. The views, information, or opinions expressed by hosts or guests are their own. Neither the show nor any of its content should be construed as investment advice or as a recommendation to buy or sell any particular security. Security-specific information shared on this podcast should not be relied upon as a basis for your own investment decisions. Be sure to do your own research. The podcast hosts and participants may have a position in the securities mentioned personally through sub-accounts and or through separate funds and may change their holdings at any time. Welcome to This Week in Intelligent Investing, where we examine timely and timeless investing topics to help you become a better investor. Enjoy authentic, unscripted discussion featuring Phil Ordway, Elliot Turner, and other thought-leading investors, brought to you by MOI Global. And now, here's your host, John Michalczewicz. Welcome to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. I've got my co-hosts here, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great discussion ahead, so let's launch right into it. Phil, over to you. Thanks, John. So we talked uh, sometime late last year, a few weeks ago, and uh, we were talking about something somewhat related, but I I made reference to the term volatility laundering, which Elliot correctly identified as having been coined, I believe, for the first time in an FT op-ed by Cliff Asnes of AQR. And so that got me thinking about the whole topic. And sure enough, uh, as I was reading into it and and looking into the topic, over the last uh, two or three weeks, there was kind of this hilarious back and forth, uh, actually an institutional investor uh, between Cliff Asnes and someone by the name of Christopher Schelling. Uh, who's a consultant uh, at a firm called Five One Two Alternatives, uh, boutique consulting and a boutique consulting firm dedicated to helping wealth managers, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I I was not familiar with him, but anyway, he wrote an article uh, dated December fourteenth of twenty twenty two, titled "Why Private Equity Gets Valuations Right: Interim Valuations Don't Matter," and proceeds to disparage Cliff Asnes and his whole concept of volatility laundering, uh, goes into some of the arguments about where return comes from, you know, in terms of multiple expansion, earnings growth, dividends, et cetera. All of that is all fine and well, throws in some Ben Graham quotes for good measure, but then proceeds to lay out a series of non sequiturs and logical fallacies, in my opinion, that that kind of got me going and they certainly got that got cliff going but anyway so as to this original argument he said that in private markets it is precisely the friction of transaction that prevents frivolous pricing which is a really bizarre and aggressive statement to make given that you know and his example is no one can panic sell a house or presumably panic buy a house because it costs far too much and i think we've all seen enough trillions of dollars wasted on both sides of transactions in in buying and selling homes over the years that that statement can be safely disregarded. I think we can also say that private equity itself has been notorious in the amounts of money it's willing to waste on both sides of a transaction. So that's, that's one really bizarre argument that I couldn't quite get my head around. And then another one was, he said, put another way, private equity markets have no voting mechanism. They are only a weighing machine. There is no reason for multiples to oscillate wildly based upon emotional and inaccurate predictions of the future. In fact, most private equity firms hold multiples fairly constant over the life of an investment. Close quote. 
again, just factually disproved right on the face, like not much of an argument there. And he did then later on acknowledge that, you know, good, well, make the argument that good quote unquote private equity funds hold businesses below where they ultimately sell and bad funds mark them up during fundraising. And of course, that's the whole point, right? Is that every private equity firm known to man more or less is constantly in a two to three year re-fundraising cycle and is showing marks in, from prior funds and prior cycles to justify what they're doing. So in response to that, uh, in an article dated January 6th, just last week of this year, Cliff Asnes wrote, if you wanted to come up with the one-liner about investing most likely to make my head explode, you might try. The way to choose investments is to jump on whatever's done the best over the past three to five years. Or getting more creative, hey, did you know Kathy Wood is still getting inflows? Yet more creative, the war in Ukraine was caused by stock buybacks, but you couldn't do much better than interim valuations don't really matter, close quote. So he goes on to just kind of eviscerate this argument. And I, of course, see it his way because I I just don't understand how you can completely discount the fact that as the original article, Christopher Schelling's article is doing and saying that the market is just wildly inefficient. And business prices are are often completely out of whack with reality, but only in the cases of these declines in which public markets have to recognize the price decline and private equity don't, is, is that logical? And, and can we sit here and say that that holds water? And it's just a stretch too much. And I think the real story here for me is that this is a story about incentives, incentives, and more incentives. I think volatility laundering, as Cliff Asnes describes, is this concept that allocators would rather not know what's going on and that they're willing to pay for it. He quotes at the very end of the article, never have so many paid so much to so few for the privilege of being told so little. (laughs) And look, I mean, I think one good thing here is that love him or hate him. And I I don't read every one of his papers and essays by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, Cliff has obviously been known to enjoy a good argument, a good debate, a good fight every once in a while, but he can at least see the humor in all of this. And I, to me, that's usually the sign of more logical, level-headed thinking than someone who's really dogmatic, someone who's blinded by self-interest, etc. Um, but I, it just doesn't hold up to reason that this is how the world should work. And again, like I, I think the logical fallacy is just right there for it and saying that you know, the price of everything moves. And so if you know the prices move, but you're just saying we're going to ignore them, wouldn't that negate any benefit from it right there? Just just saying it out loud, wouldn't that kind of undo the magic that you think you're you're spinning over this whole thing? So in any case, in a year where pretty much everything declined, uh, thinking back to last year, 2022, um, you know, unless you owned certain energy or other commodities, uh, or unless you were short some stuff, I mean, basically everything went down, uh, you know, my results included. I mean, nothing too painful, but, you know, everything went down. But yet I think it'll be fascinating to watch where a lot of these private equity funds and, and private assets of all kinds say that, oh, you know, we didn't really decline or or this didn't recline, didn't decline very much. I mean, the, the Blackstone B-REIT is a fascinating example of this as well, where there were liquidity constraints, you know, up against reality, where it was like, okay, somebody's wrong here, and I know which side I'm, I'm willing to believe in. And again, I think this is just sort of a classic example of the original sin in all of finance, really all of business, which is 
a bad idea starts out as a good idea and just gets taken too far. So going way back to David Swenson, where he found that there was really this quite obvious asymmetry that was just begging to be exploited, whereby he could buy more in the private markets than he could in the public markets. And because that was such a good idea, it's now been completely bastardized and taken way too far. And I think anyone would tell you that prices are now far more favorable and have been for quite some time in the public markets, and they come with the added benefit of liquidity, right? And I don't think anybody can really argue that liquidity has value. It's far better if you have two identical assets, you'd prefer the one that can be traded easily and quickly and efficiently, as opposed to the one where you're tying yourself to the mass because you can't you can't be tempted with the volatility or, or excuse me, tempted with the liquidity and, and where the volatility is just going to drive you completely insane. So I don't know. I find this whole thing fascinating. I find the arguments in favor of these artificial constraints, these lockups whereby, you know, you're just sort of plugging your ears and closing your eyes, blindfolding yourself really kind of bizarre and, and wonder what you guys think about it. Yeah. So, I mean, first off, happy and a healthy new year to everyone. Uh, happy to be back. Happy to roll the calendar and turn to the next year. Um, I think this is such a fascinating topic and it's so interesting to see that um, interesting might be the wrong word that even SBF chimed in to Cliff Asnes tweet about this with his own thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. And Cliff retweeted it. Correlation of official marks of private companies can be zero for a surprisingly long time though, is what SBF had to say, which I I kind of find kind of funny. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Hmm. And uh, yeah. So this topic has reached literally everywhere. Um, so, you know, I think uh, you know, Asnes shares my uh, Stanford, Connecticut home. Uh, know some people that work there. Great guy, great shop. Um, I think the phrase volatility laundering is freaking awesome. It's, it's, it's like hilarious in every way. Um, I was at a talk in the late fall with the uh, one of someone who was an endowment head not long ago. And he spoke to how there was so much capital committed to private equity that has yet to be called, that it's actually starting to be a problem as markets head lower because if stocks head lower, capital calls come in, they might be for sellers of stocks to meet these capital calls. So like the problems are more than even meet the eye. Um, and yet it's like the private equity marks won't move, even though they're in an advantageous position because of it. Um, so I think there's a lot going on there. And, and, you know, I think we're still with how much, uh, uncalled capital there is that's committed. Um, this is a tidal wave that's going to keep on rolling. And, you know, I've cited this paper a lot of times on the podcast, uh, myopic loss aversion in the equity risk premium by Shlomo Benarzi and Richard Thaler. But like, you know, the equity risk premium, they attribute largely to volatility itself and how humans deal with it, right? Why else would equity give a higher return um, than bonds, um, than the risk-free rate? It's largely because things are volatile and people have a hard time dealing with that and having a hard, have a hard time sitting through the vacillations of the market. And that's a big part of what creates the opportunity. Meanwhile, here you have people paying to not have to see marks. And I think the endowment people and people in that world are, as Asnes rightly points out, very candid about how much people like not having to deal with uh, the consequence of 
changes in sentiment towards markets. And, you know, that's, that's really tough. Um, I think, you know, at its essence, part of the beauty of private equity is these people should be fantastic operators and should be able to deliver incremental value beyond a risk premia by operating the business better, improving its performance, and then getting it back out to public markets. And so despite some of what I'm saying contextually, I think there is there are pockets where the opportunity is very interesting right now. Um, Toma Bravo raised a very large fund toward the end of last year. And software, maybe it's just an arbitrage where it's an incentive arbitrage where as a public company, you are expected and essentially have to pay massive amounts of stock comps. So you're diluting the crap out of your public equity holders in order to compensate your employees. And they're a stakeholder that comes above all others. And in private equity, well, because you're the operator and you're the owner, bye-bye stock comp, bye-bye dilution, hello rationalization and a focus on margin and delivering cash flow. Um, You know, that to me is in some ways part of what private equity exists to do. They could force the hand and just the expectation of private equity. I know of at least one or two uh, software companies who cited, um, you know, um, activism or threats as a path as a risk factor recently, but, you know, because the companies have to think about, Hey, maybe I might be the next target of these guys. Should I clean up before I, you know, interesting things and good back to the topic at hand, you know, this volatility laundering is absolutely a problem. And it's a problem. I, I'm glad you mentioned B-Read, Phil, because, you know, B-Read is almost worse because it's, Hey, let's mark to fiction, but also let's, let's market something that's incredibly illiquid and call it liquid. And then it's like, oh, actually, you know, who wouldn't have expected everyone who wants liquidity to want liquidity at the same time, well, which especially then because renders I it think, illiquid again? Yeah, and I think it was because it's particularly obvious that wasn't it at the time that the the NAV was stated at like up 5% year over year or something in the fourth quarter? <laughs> it was just that people aren't that stupid, right? Yeah. And I got to be on a call with them. And there's like, uh, on the one hand, on the other hand situation here, it's like their contention is, hey, if you look at public REITs, they were down a lot because they came into the year trading at 10% above NAV and they exit the year trading at 10% below NAV. And we get to be rational and not deal with, you know, Mr. Market's sentiments. And so, you know, if you just look at NAV, NAV is more stable than uh, the realities of everyday pricing. And, you know, there's a degree to which that's hard to argue with. But on the other hand, I mean, there are definitely some questionable elements to when you get uh, peel back the layers of how they actually market, uh, how it works. Um, you know, I think that's pretty, pretty, uh, it, it's on the one hand, on the other hand, right? Like it could be done well, it could be done poorly. Um, but then also, I think um, I wanted to add one risk factor that Asnes didn't discuss, but it's like if if private equity merely returns what equi- equities return, but does so with like three times as much leverage, which it does, right, right. is that really a good return? I mean, is it worse than merely volatility laundering? And in fact, also some degree of like, um, 
you know, extra risk without acknowledging it. <laughs> so yeah, those are some of my thoughts to to yeah. kick this off. I mean, that's one of the many things that's just undeniable, right? Is like, okay, asset prices are not static. I think we can all agree with that, right? And it it just turns into a straw man argument where it's like, well, people just freak out and panic and take things too far in both directions, which we'll come back to in a minute. But if you acknowledge that things like COVID-19 and the war in Ukraine and interest rates and inflation that have all been massive, truly, you know, paradigm shifting events over the past three years. If you acknowledge that all three of those things exist and you acknowledge that all three of those events could not have been accurately predicted in advance by the market or by anyone else, and you acknowledge that they all had an impact on asset prices, and then you acknowledge that having tons of leverage on those assets is going to exacerbate the moves in both directions. And you're here to tell me that, <laughs> that, that prices didn't move in this portfolio of, of privately held securities just because they're under a different capital structure, a different financial structure. I mean, it's just mind boggling, right? And then similar to you, Elliot, I mean, I can't count the number of times where people I know, either in a, in a formal capacity or in a personal capacity, have completely acknowledged the elephant in the room. I mean, I, I'll never forget, this was probably 10 years ago now, but the guy who was in charge of the venture capital portfolio at one of the America's, you know, it was a top 10 university endowment by size in the US. And he said, yeah, look, we know that all these marks are nonsense and we know that they're all way too high at the moment. And again, think about this being 10 years ago. So we know they're all too high at the moment, but you know, until there's a liquidity event, we just kind of sit here and do nothing. So he's he's acknowledging the validity of this argument or the the position espoused by Cliff Asness. And to my opinion, when like people get involved in these elaborate charades where they're saying, yeah, I, I know that this is a, you know, to use an extreme example, I FTX, I know that this is a Ponzi scheme, but like that never ends well. And in this case, far less maliciously, I know this is a charade and the assets should be marked down, but it's it's just not a good thing. And so going back to how this could all end poorly, um, you know, the point that Cliff Asnes uses in his op-ed is that, you know, we haven't had anything more than like a two to three year downturn in asset prices with a big snapback, right? So it was getting really close to being a huge problem in 2008, 2009, into 2010. And then things, you know, flattened out and took off again. COVID, it was even shorter somehow, Right. But to his point, we have had 10-year sideways markets before, 10-year periods where markets were actually down. And what if this is one of them? If it is, it's not going to be pretty for these portfolios. And then that gets me back to maybe my final contention with the whole thing is that you're paying fees upon fees upon fees, right? I mean, if you're not marking an asset, how are you still charging a management fee to the to the whole pool of capital, right? And and don't don't be start either on how the IRR is calculated, right? Where you're charging fees on the committed capital, but only charging IRR on the drawn capital because you're using credit lines to plug the hole and just juicing the whole thing. Like it's all fiction. It's all nonsense. And anyone without you know a, a giant load of of self induced bias would admit that. But here we are, right? I mean, that's the world we live in. And I think it's interesting. Uh, one thing I forgot to say is that lattice work in uh, New York, um, Howard Marks, I think, three times referenced these realities of private equity 
as one of the foremost uh, risks lurking out there um, in the market. So to tie that back, I, I mean, I think I think that's kind of interesting that a lot of people are attuned to this and aware, um, and people that a lot of people listen to are saying this. Uh, yet, uh, I like that you use the word charade, Phil. The the charade just keeps on rolling. I think Asnes, you know, on on the decades of markets going nowhere, absolutely have to fear um, the realities of certain exit multiples. Um, I think a lot of people over the last couple of years uh, have to start thinking about whether they are using appropriate exit multiples on things. Um, and I know uh, I remember the KKR. Was it KKR who bought out Boots in the uh, 2007 period, right before the financial crisis? Like um, they weren't supposed to get as good an exit as they did. So to the to to the point about how you could have a really bad ex- uh, ten years, I, I think they got out with a modest gain after theoretically uh, bordering on on insolvency. There, um, what happens if some of these things do uh, start looking worse? And would you ever get a revolt on some of this massive committed capital that's just lurking out there? What would happen if if that were to happen? Um, meanwhile, I, I still take hold of that quote about how from the endowment uh, gentleman I heard speak about how they'd actually have to turn into four sellers of equities just to fulfill these committed requirements right yeah. when you'd actually least want oh, yeah. to be buying private equity. Yeah, that's ex- that definitely happened to Harvard management and the global financial crisis, right? I mean, that's what I mean. They took the the Swenson model of a good idea and just took it way, way, way too far and it became a huge disaster. Do we have a sense for how big of a, in magnitude that could be, Elliot? You know, the um, the committed capital that can be drawn upon. I mean, you know, public equity markets are very, very large in terms of their market caps. So, how much would this really affect, um, you know, equity markets? Yeah, I didn't see a number recently, so I I, I don't really know, um, and and I don't know the I didn't get a sense of how much selling there would have to be, but just the very notion that you theoretically want to be a buyer uh, in that environment and you'd have to be a seller alone is kind of uh, a scary reality, I think. Yeah, I don't have a great number either. It's certainly in the hundreds of billions, though. It may be more than a trillion. So, I mean, you're talking about a you know mid single digits kind of percentage of you know what could actually come out, I guess, in a worst case scenario. So that that part of it doesn't bother me. It's not like this is going to induce a market crash or do something really unhealthy. I mean, that's one of the the best parts about the financial markets in a deep liquid market like the U.S. equity markets is that you know. Lots of things can go wrong, but in general, their 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 depth and their liquidity is one of their defining assets and benefits. So that does what bothers me is just the you know the nonsense nature of it, right? I mean, I, so it's funny because um, of course in his article, uh, Cliff Asnes obliquely refers to Warren Buffett, and there's there's a link to what he's referring to, and it goes back to the the famous part about I think this was an annual meeting. Berkshire annual meeting some years ago. Uh, looks like maybe 2018 or 2019. I'll, I, I'll have to check. It's not cited in this plo- in this post, but it's all up on that CNBC archive. And he first starts railing again about you know the fiction of IRR. Then he goes into 
Buffett does goes into this story about, you know, why do you charge two and 20? Well, it's because I couldn't get three and 30, blah, blah, blah. And then Charlie Munger chimes in with his usual trenchant op- observation where he hits it right on the head with this, which is, again, just all about the incentives that are here. He says, quote, what I don't like about pension fund investments is I think they like it because they don't have to mark it down as much, talking about private equity investments. Uh, they don't have to mark it down as much as, should, as they should in the middle of downturns and panics. I think that's a silly reason to buy something because you're given leniency in marking it down. What and then he turns to Buffett and says, Warren, all they're doing is lying a little bit to make the money come in. And Buffett replies, yeah, well, that sums it up. And, and that really is it. And I don't want to paint this in a super nefarious light. I mean, I, I think he's right. They're lying a little bit and they're lying in the way that most salespeople would lie in the way that most humans would lie given the incentives involved. They don't think they're doing anything wrong and waking up in the morning and saying, I'm going to screw people. But they just are in this you know, roundabout way of thinking where if it was presented in any other light, you, you'd shake your head and just marvel at it. I mean, again, I think this is a little bit of a stretched analogy, but I was thinking about it while I was watching some sports over the holidays and you know the, all these stupid things you can gamble on them now in real time and they've got these real time wind probabilities up in in front of them and imagine if you had a game like you know basketball that's probably a bad example uh, maybe a game like soccer world football where you can kind of tell who's winning but you can't really you know definitively say this is going to happen you know, right around the corner, but you could only bet on the final outcome and couldn't place any bets in the meantime. And you had no access to the scoreboard, no access to any stats, no access to any evaluation or, or I guess basketball, right. Where like you could keep the score by hand and say like, yeah, look, we're down 30 at the half, but trust me, we're going to come back and win the game. And then, you know, because you do have a better team, you've come back and won the game you know, 10 out of the last 10 times. But, you know, if you keep playing with fire and you're down 30 at the half, eventually you're going to lose one of those. And the bet you made on a single source model-based valuation kind of methodology is going to be wrong. It's going to lose. And yet here we are. That's exactly how this asset class with trillions of dollars behind it is is being operated today. And it's really kind of bonkers. It is. Although let's talk about the psychology of it all for a minute, because there is something nice about not having to stare at market quotes and about being able to say, hey, I focus on the business. I worry just about how the business is executing. You know, I think that's part of the genius of what Buffett's done in some ways. He's been able to um, ignore some of the sensitivities to that. And he's been very candid about it, that yes, we actually do have um, the expectation that our stock will go down uh, 50% somewhere along the way. But hey, we just focus on being disciplined, being rational, being smart, not being stupid, uh, whatever you want to call it. Um, and there's literally no other way to get that effect other than owning business. Historically, those businesses had an illiquidity premium. So maybe the problem we all have with it is confounded by the fact that you do pay higher fees, that a lot of the return comes from leverage, and you're not really just harvesting a premium. You're kind of like, uh, I guess volatility laundering is a nice way to put it. Um, you're you're kind of like taking something and and making it something else. Yeah, and look, I think you're you, you hit that on the head. And as usual, Cliff Astis made that same point. He he referred to it as. He said, quote, I do admit part of my motivation here is professional jealousy, close quote, which is correct. I, I 
him, you, a lot of people would completely acknowledge the fact that it would be lovely to live in this alternative universe where you never had to worry about whether things were going up or going down. You never had to report to anyone. You never had to worry about quoted prices. You never had to worry that you should be tying yourself to the mass to avoid the siren song of crowd psychology and markets going up and down. And I get it. Like There are legitimate reasons to prefer that, but that's just not reality. And and he goes on to say, like, you know, for the life of me, I can't understand, you know, why you can't just be long-term in public markets, you know, and then he correctly knows that it's the principal agent problem and says that it's whoever the agents report to who really need to improve here, not the agents themselves who are just responding to incentives. And again, I think that's exactly right. And, and again, not to be too harsh on the allocators here, but they are the source of pretty much all of this behavior, whether it's venture, private equity, hedge funds, long only, they are the source of all this because they are putting out these massive, massive incentives and the managers are responding to them. And in turn, I, I, I would absolve the allocators from a large part of this because they have their own incentives, right? They've chosen this career. They're getting a lot of compensation. They're getting a lot of psychological rewards from being in charge of this, you know, multi-billion dollar endowment for this great institution. They don't want to lose that job. They don't want to lose face and and their reputation. So I don't think any of this is going to change. I think this is kind of embedded in the psychology of where we are in the world and in the markets right now. But it's it's a fascinating little wrinkle. And I think just one that you can easily avoid if you have the the personal I don't know what the right word is, but the the psychological makeup to just say, okay, you know, liquidity has benefits and drawbacks, but I'm going to grip my teeth and just be a patient long-term investor based on rational, logical, long-term thinking. That's the way to to do it. That's the way to go about it. And I also just want to add to that, maybe maybe make a distinction because private equity, I mean, you could paint it with a big brush. Um, There's all different kinds. And I think some kinds are less about this volatility laundering than others. So I mentioned the software opportunity. I mean, maybe software has been volatility laundering for the last decade, but I do think there's an opportunity to kind of like arbitrage the incentive structures. Middle market private equity, I know some people doing some really interesting things, buying you know, uh, small businesses and small industries and rolling them up to create much bigger, different kinds of uh, businesses by virtue of scale, and then bringing them to either a smart acquirer or public markets as as a scaled business uh, at a different multiple, deservedly so because it's a very uh, it's a whole new essence. Um, so I do think uh, if you are in an, in an endowment thinking about allocating to private equity, you know maybe ask yourself this question: Am I volatility laundering? And merely going there for the allure of uh, not dealing with public marks? Or is there something like strategic and value add that I'm going after here? Um, that would be the question I'd ask myself in that seat, to be honest. Yeah, for sure. And there, there, you know, this point's been made plenty of other times by other people, but it's worth reiterating here as well. You could get pretty much all of the benefit by having locked up levered exposure to small and mid-cap equities where, you know, 
you'd pay way lower fees, first of all. And second of all, you would have liquidity should you need it along the way. So you wouldn't be a forced seller in some other asset class to meet the capital calls inherent here. And you know, again, I, I think that's the part where you would hope that the institutional allocators would have a little bit longer a look in the mirror and say, we're paying hundreds of millions of dollars a year in many cases in fees. And what are we getting for that? It's it's tough, right? Yep. Yep. Exactly right. And it's, uh, you know, you still have to deal with the nav statement every month. So you still have to deal with the psychology of a really yep. bad mark and being like, oh man, what have I done? Yeah, um, that is true. You know, I, I think the nice part about that is to the Benarzi and Thaler point, uh, because it's committed, you can't do something stupid which is like get out of it at the time when you most want to buy. Um, and I think that's very helpful uh, in a certain respect. But you might be all along the way questioning yourself, did I make a really bad choice? Um, you don't have to do that with private equity. So maybe it's also yeah. not just volatility laundering. It's like, uh, I sleep better at night. <laughs> Whatever yeah, you there's call some that. of that. Yeah, and look, there's, there's a very valid... Um, it's not so much a criticism as it is just an observation that because your average public manager, public equity fund, long or short, long only, whatever, uh, has liquidity. And, you know, I, I would in this case say that there are almost no vehicles of that kind that couldn't liquidate their entire portfolio inside of a year or two. And therefore, almost none of the capital providers or limited partners in those funds is willing to give them a lockup a whole lot longer than two years or three years, even if those funds purport to make investments over the really long term. And look, obviously, most of them don't. And I'm not just talking about the SAC model, the Citadels, the Baliazines that are just trading nonstop in, in, the porf- in, you know, in the portfolio manager carousel where they're you know, not holding things very long. I'm talking about funds that really do hold things for, for many, many years. There is absolutely an asset liability mismatch there. And it's just the way the industry's evolved and it's suboptimal. And in that sense, private equity has absolutely got it better in that they have this committed, you know, seven to 10 year capital in most cases. And that's something that every manager would want for good reasons, not for any sort of charade or nefarious reasons. I mean, that is a good thing. And it's, 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 it's a good, they got to a good outcome probably for the wrong reason, I guess I'd say. Yeah, psychologically, it reminds me of that study um, that was done, I think, uh, sort of when a client checks their monthly, checks their account statement monthly versus annually. Yeah. Uh, The ones that check it monthly turn over uh, a lot more to their detriment, probably, um, a lot of the time. Just, you know, if you look at other studies, kind of time-weighted versus uh, money-weighted returns of retail investors, it makes it clear that um, they act, um, you know, at the wrong times to to buy or sell or get in and out of the market. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think overall, this point is just very, very clear uh, in terms of private equity marks. Um, you know, it's kind of like if the stock market uh, closed for a few years, um, does that mean stocks are now less risky? I mean, it's obvious uh, what the answer is. 
Yeah, and, that, and that's a great point, and it's never going to change, right? It's never going to matter. The stock market will hopefully never be closed for a period of years, and we'll never have to find that answer. And if it did close for more than a few days for some unexpected reason, it would no doubt result in everyone saying the stock market was riskier than it had ever been, right? I mean, it's just, that's the way of the world. So I, I try not to get too much on my soapbox about this kind of stuff, but I feel Cliff Astis is pain where if you really had to sit down and think about it from the beginning from scratch and explain it to an intelligent newcomer, your head would want to explode. Yeah, I mean, it's it also goes back um, to the principal agent problem, right? As a, as a principal, you'd do the right thing because, you know, you want the truth. Um, as an agent, you want to paint whatever picture works best for your, you know, comp or bonus this year. And that's just how it is. Yep. If I had to make you guys bet, and I, I've, I actually thankfully did not participate in this, but two good friends of mine had a bet on what level of assets Blackstone would hit, assets under management. Uh, so this bet would have been made in 2017, and it was through the end of 2022. So it literally just hit its end date a couple of weeks ago. And the guy who took the over, I'd have to look up what the level was, uh, absolutely crushed it, as you would imagine. So the loser owes him dinner. But if I had to bet, if I had to make you guys bet on whether private equity would attract more funds over the next 10 years than they have over the last 10 years, where would you shake out? I mean, just because it's a simple numbers game, uh, it's hard not to say more because the beginning of the decade, it was fairly small and relative to now. Yeah, I'm going to say more over the next 10 years. I, I think just with committed capital, you're you're a long way of the way there. Yeah, I, I guess I should clarify then. Like new, new closed funds, new fundraisings. So new allocations. Still going to go with more. <laughs> yeah. I'll take the over then. I'm going to yeah. go with more in nominal terms, just because we're going to have an inflation over the next decade. So, you know, but in real terms, could be less. Yeah, I've I've been thinking for at least five years that we hit the peak and there was no way that money would keep pouring in. And I was obviously dead wrong. And so even now I'd be tempted to say, oh, we've definitely hit the peak now and there's no way there's going to be more money pouring into this. I'll probably be wrong again. So, <laughs> so if not private equity, where would it go? I guess is, is one of the questions. Well, yeah, but I mean, I, that is one of the questions. But I, you know, you get into some really circular arguments here about what is the source of the funding and where does the funding need to go, and you know, that's where you can start to get into some really crazy slash depressing math about the state of pension funds, even sovereign wealth funds, and what kind of liquidity and cash they need to meet their obligations in the next ten years. Right? I mean, we've talked about that a lot on here that. It's just a different world where you have an aging, graying population and relatively few workers to replace that retiring population. And so, I mean, that, that's a complicating factor here, right? You get into multiple dimensions and it gets difficult. But I, again, I, I've been wrong a lot on this. I wouldn't want to bet against the marketing prowess of the private equity industry. Yeah. Also, yes. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, um, you know, 
the interest rate environment may play a role as well because private equity definitely had a huge tailwind with um, low interest rates, um, just given the uh, sort of leveraged nature of a lot of those deals. And if that's going to be a lot more expensive, then the whole asset class may not be as attractive. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, it's uh, tough to think about you know how that should shake out maybe fixed income gets a whole lot more uh, attractive with higher rates uh, once again uh, but private equity has a hand to play there as well yeah it does i mean i it's been so weird i mean i i'm literally writing about this right now finishing up my annual letter for for last year and you know it, it this has nothing to do with a hard prediction i certainly don't have a crystal ball but the one recurring thought I've had basically for the last three years nonstop is that none of this is normal. And you know that's because we came into COVID, which was a generation-defining pandemic and something that literally turned most of the world upside down for, for several years. And we came into that period with all sorts of weird stuff going on. Trillions of dollars at negative yields in the bond market you know, easy money sloshing around everywhere, relatively elevated valuations, uh, stretched public finances in a lot of ways. And then it just went even more berserk from there and unleashed one of the great speculative booms of all time in a range of asset classes and a, all sorts of delusions and frauds and manias that I think people will still be thinking about and writing about decades from now. And but there's so, some forces at work that have been around longer than that, right? So the great equity shrinkage. There are, um, you know, I, I had to look it up exactly. I knew the Wilshire 5000 didn't have 5,000 stocks. It peaked at 7,500 stocks in the Wilshire 5000 in 1998. Yeah. And it was down right. to under 3,700 stocks last year. Um, my take and, on that's a little different because I think if you look, I mean, there's no doubt that there's multiple factors involved there and that private equity has come in and hoovered up a bunch of these funds. Well, companies these have shrunk companies. themselves too, right? The and great they've shrinkage. shrunk themselves. Companies and, have been net, net uh, repurchasers, not net issuers, which is a big sure. change from what it was like you know, back before 2000. And it's gotten way more expensive because of regulatory changes to be a public company. And that's you know, mostly a good thing, I would say. But look, there's nothing magic about saying that like the all-time peak of the number of companies in the public markets of 20, 25 years ago was like the right number because that number went sharply up in the late 90s. So that could have just been a temporary, you know, inflation in the number of public companies that are out there. I, I look around and I don't see any sort of imbalance between the number of companies that are public and the number of companies that are private, right? I mean, again, where it starts to boggle my mind a little bit is when people just disavow the benefits of being public and only focus on the, the cost of being public. Because again, anybody who think there isn't, thinks there isn't value in having a deep liquid market is just living on another planet than I am. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, the Wilshire did have 5,000 for a very long time. Sure. Um, but, so you know, again, there's still, if you look at like number of companies per capita, right? Like, and you compare that to like all the westernized nations of the world, like there's nothing that really jumps out as being totally nuts. Like the U.S. is still the most represented, the most liquid, you know, Europe and Japan still function just fine, you know. Totally. There, there are countries like Canada and Australia where there's only 30, 35 million people in each country and they still have 
plenty of public companies. Like their capital markets are still plenty deep too. Like there's nothing, in my opinion, there's no like acute shortage there in any sense. Curious, um, back to private equity. Uh, do you guys ever look at private equity sponsors in the public markets? Um, you know, KKR is uh, is a name that's been uh, thrown around as uh, being cheap and a good business that's growing. I mean, how does this discussion that we just had relate to that? Yeah, I actually have. And this goes back to the bet that um, I was referring to between these two friends of mine. Uh, the the guy who took the over owned a big position in Blackstone and was very convinced about the the future landscape of fundraising. And again, the interesting part is that nobody seemed to care or even pretend to forecast what the incentive was going to be or had any thought whatsoever as to what the returns posted by these funds was going to be. Um, and they're that was exactly the right way to approach it because it didn't end up mattering and it probably won't end up mattering too much. Um, and so anyway, yes, I have looked at all of the big public asset managers. Um, it's undeniable that they have a good business. It's undeniable that I see things a little bit differently. It's undeniable that they're massively complex, right? I mean, I would argue that it's it's always difficult to understand what the incentives are and who's pulling the triggers and and what the you know two or three or four things are that really matter when you're an outsider and i think that's even harder here so you know in full disclosure i have never owned them and it's been a huge mistake because they've obviously pulled in tons of assets and done really well yeah i know a lot of really smart people invested in these companies so uh, you know i and and i've looked at them through the years i think one reality, uh, there's a line that a lot of traders say, which is trade the world you have, not the one you want. Oh, for sure. And one thing you could do is invert uh, Asnes complaints and say, well, that's not stopping anytime soon. Therefore, these must be fantastic businesses. They have created a product that people have all the incentive in the world to buy. And when you think about the the customers of these businesses... Like there's little that'll change that anytime soon, no matter how much any of us could complain about it. Um, so, you know, isn't that a moat of sorts? It's not very easy now to enter the private equity business. There's a lot of scale involved, it's complex. Um, these companies are very easy for allocators to allocate to. Like you can't just be a, a one man startup private equity shop with, you know, raising a couple million here or there. Um, so yeah, I mean, you have to think they're interesting if, if you believe that these things are going to keep going. Yeah, I, I agree by the way, a hundred percent with you have to take the world as it is, not as you wish it would be. And so that, that hasn't stopped me. Um, uh, at the same time, I, I will also say that there are some things where you would find them suboptimal or objectionable and you should hold your nose and, and go along with it. There are many other times where, in my opinion, I can just say, I don't, have to participate in this, right? It's not like I'm compelled to be a part of it or own it. Um, but yeah, look, I mean, uh, it's it certainly was not wrong to say that these businesses had all kinds of momentum on their side. It wasn't going to stop, even though there were key aspects of it that were a little bit bonkers. Um, you know, there's there's lots of things like that in the world. So here we are. Yeah, I mean, I remember, you know, the rating agencies, uh, let's say Moody's yeah. back in yeah. 2008, 
it's a good um, example you know a culprit for for a lot of what went on and yet um you know came out of it and still has been a good investment right that's a very good example yeah i was dead wrong about that too by the way i would have thought that the regulatory response in 2009 and subsequent years would have been far, far harsher. And it's a good lesson because when something is that written into the financial plumbing, it's almost impossible to to take it out, right? I mean, look at, look at LIBOR, right? I mean, I'm frankly stunned at the other end of the spectrum that a horrible scandal like the rate, figu- rate fixing scandal at LIBOR actually did result in LIBOR going away. Like if you had told me 15 years ago that LIBOR would go away and Moody's and S&P would get off scot-free, I would have been stunned, right? That's what makes yeah. this difficult. <laughs> and was it Experian or... I think it was Experian that got hacked and it was, you know, directly traced to their underinvestment in security. I, I hope I'm not wrong about which rating agency it was. Uh, not ratings agency, which uh, credit uh, agency. Um, and um, it was directly tra- attributable to their underinvestment in, in security. And meanwhile, you know, the cost of that was a slap on the wrist. Yeah. Yeah. It happens, right? It's really, it's tough. It's really tough. Well, on that note, guys, thanks for a great discussion. I hope everyone listening enjoyed it as well. Take care for now. Thank you for listening to This Week in Intelligent Investing, brought to you exclusively by MOI Global, the research-driven membership organization. Learn more at moiglobal.com.